Welcome to the Paralegal Voice, where you hear the latest issues and trends in the world of paralegals and legal assistance by one of the best-known paralegals in the industry, Vicki Boyson. A paralegal for more than 20 years, Vicki is dedicated to helping legal professionals reach their goals. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Paralegal Voice here on Legal Talk Network. I'm Vicki Voison, the Paralegal Mentor and host of the Paralegal Voice. I'm a NALA Advanced Certified Paralegal, and I publish a weekly e-newsletter titled Paralegal Strategies. I'm also the co-author of The Professional Paralegal, A Guide to Finding a Job and Career Success, and you'll find more information at paralegalmentor.com. My guest today is Rick Rohn, Esquire, an attorney with Warner, Norcross, and Judd in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and welcome, Rick. Thank you, Vicki. Thank you. So glad that you can be with us today. But before we begin, our sponsors should be recognized and thanked. Thanks to our sponsor, Boston University. Boston University offers an online certificate in paralegal studies. Check it out if you're seeking a professional credential or just want to further develop your skills. It's an affordable, high-quality, 14-week program. Visit paralegalonline.bu.edu for more information. That's paralegalonline.bu.edu. Thanks also to Paralegal Voice sponsor, NALA, a professional association for paralegals providing continuing education and professional certification programs for paralegals at NALA.org. NALA is a force in the promotion and advancement of the paralegal profession and has been a sponsor of the Paralegal Voice since we began the show. And serve now a national network of trusted pre-screened process servers. When you work with ServeNow, you work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit ServeNow.com to learn more. The goal of the Paralegal Voice is to discuss a wide range of topics important to the paralegal industry and also share with you leading trends, significant developments, and resources you'll find helpful in your career and your everyday job. Guests are usually included to help explore timely topics, and for that reason, I've invited attorney Rick Rohn to join me today. First, I want to tell you just a little bit about him, although um, saying I'm going to tell you a little bit is uh, kind of interesting because Mr. Rohn has quite a history and a lot of experience for us. First of all, he is with Warner Norcross and Judd. He's a partner with Warner Norcross and Judd, and they're listed in the Best Lawyers in America, Martindale Hubble Rankings, and Chambers USA Acknowledgements. They're one of the largest and most successful law firms in Michigan, and I have to tell all my listeners that when I can have an attorney with me from Warner, Norcross, and Judd, I am delighted because they're one of um, the, my favorite firms to work with. Uh, this firm was created in 1931 and it, uh, with the understanding that client service would be their number one priority. Now, Mr. Rohn, as I said, is a partner with Warner, Norcross, and Judd. He has practiced family law and domestic relations litigation for 26 years. His work involves entire families, and his goal is to find a resolution to the problems 
facing the family he serves. He says that this is a less contentious approach. He specializes in divorce, non-marital domestic relationships, domestic relations mediation and arbitration, spousal support, child custody, and support complex business valuation uh, distribution, and pre- and post-nuptial agreements. As I was reading his bio, there were a couple of things that I found interesting. Uh, First of all, well, not that it's not all interesting, but anyway, he got his BBA from the University of Hawaii, so I think that's great. Uh, he has uh, a lot of does a lot of speaking and has some publications that I think that all of the listeners would like to read. These first of all is navigating custody issues. There's no place like home for the holiday, and that's home in parentheses. And he is the co-author of the Marriage Equality Movement after United States versus Windsor, resulting litigation in changes across the nation, and also the co-author of the Marriage Equality Movement after U.S. versus Windsor. So, Mr. Rohn, may I call you Rick? Yes, please. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you here today, and I know that I have told you the quick story about exactly why we're doing uh, this particular podcast, because I had a, I was speaking at a paralegal conference. I had a paralegal who approached me and uh, confided in me that she is gay, that she has many fears about this status and uh, what would happen if she came out and her employer and also her co-workers knew about her status. And she asked me to please address this issue on the paralegal voice. So uh, I've invited you to be with me, both because of your professional and personal experiences in this issue. And I think that this is going to help a lot of my listeners um, with LGBT issues. I'm happy to be on the program today and to help your uh, the, the paralegal who approached you uh, on issues and concerns of, of being out uh, as a lesbian, gay, transsexual, or a bisexual individual is because I'm gay. I'm openly gay, and I've always been, well, for most of my 28 years of practice, I've been openly gay in my legal community. I practice primarily in Grand Rapids, which is a small uh, conservative community traditionally, but it is an open, and it's a diverse community as well. And so my the shot thoughts that I want to share are from my personal experience uh, that, um, and I'd like to share uh, and, and talk about fears and talk about security and talk about, uh, you know, uh, security in in one's career. I think that that is exactly what uh, my friend was asking about. Now, let's begin by talking about the history of LGBT issues, and that's going to include the Elliott Larson Act and DOMA and so forth. So go ahead and, and fill us in a little bit about that. Well, to talk about the history of LGBT issues, of course, there have been gays and lesbians throughout history, and I'm talking about going back centuries and probably back to the, to the dawn of time. Um, but in the most recent history, I would probably focus on, I would think, the modern LGBT movement, which essentially is defined as being in June 1969 uh, with the Stonewall Uprising, and that 
coincided with the modern feminist movement in the 60s, the civil rights movement through the 50s, and culminating in the 1960s with the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And so as these marginalized groups, as these groups of minorities, first the African Americans and then the women, and then gays and lesbians, you know, they, as these movements are taking place and people are demanding their civil rights in 1969 for the first time uh, in an organized fashion, the gays and lesbians at a certain bar in New York City, the Stonewall uh, Bar in Greenwich Village, uh, when there was a, one of the typical police raids because it was illegal for gays and lesbians to gather uh, and socialize together, believe it or not, as late as 1969. And so they'd be routinely arrested and prosecuted. And so for the first time in June 1969, they fought back. And that started, and that's the flashpoint of what we know as the modern uh, civil, rights, civil rights movement or the gay rights movement. So going back to 1969, um, bit by bit, in community after community, uh, lesbians and gays felt more comfortable to be out. And we've seen that in all of our lifetimes, the lifetime of the listeners, uh, where you don't have uh, police raids on bars, you don't have that type of repression, but there's still discrimination and there's still inequality. Uh, going back to my area of specialty as a divorce lawyer, I want to focus on the what I'll call the marriage equality movement, which is gay marriage as it has developed uh, internationally starting in 2001 with the first country, the Netherlands, in 2001 to recognize gays, right, gays and lesbians' right to marry. Uh, and then in 2004, where we had the first state in the United States, Massachusetts became the first state uh, to recognize same-sex marriage. And so just 11 years later, in 2015, we have the issue of same-sex marriage, 38 states in the country, and Washington, D.C., so 39 jurisdictions, recognize and allow same-sex marriage. There are now a minority of 12 holdout states, prohibition states, including Michigan, which is in that minority of states that still have either constitutional amendments or laws on the book that prohibit same-sex marriage. And so that's what I want to focus uh, some of my comments on right now, how we got here, uh, what impact marriage has and where we're going, and then how that ties in to other rights and job security and things of that nature for LGBT folks. So uh, if I can continue. Uh, <laughs> oh, please, please do. Please do. Two years ago, just under two years ago, on June 26, 2013, the U.S. versus Windsor case was decided by the United States Supreme Court. That wasn't a marriage case. It was a tax case. And in that case, it was a case where Edith Windsor, uh, a lesbian woman living in New York, was in a long-term relationship with her, ultimately her wife, Thea Spire. Uh, they met in the early 1960s. Edith worked for IBM. Thea was an immigrant from the Netherlands. Um, her, her family fled the Nazis during World War II, uh, and her father was wealthy. He owned a pickle factory. They came to, to New York. Uh, Thea became a therapist and ran a therapy office in her home. Edie and Thea were a couple, and they loved each other and shared their life together. And as Thea grew older, she developed multiple sclerosis, and so Edie quit her job at IBM and became the caregiver to Thea, by, the, by 2009, before New York, where they lived, was a marriage equality state, it was very important for them to marry. They wanted to marry as, as Thea was really becoming sicker and sicker and was likely to die. And so they went to Canada, which was a marriage recognition country, and they got married and they came back to New York, but New York had a prohibition statute, so New York did not recognize their marriage. Now, 
if a heterosexual couple went to the to Canada to get married and they got married and they came back to New York, New York recognizes their marriage. But under the various marriage prohibition statutes that were enacted starting in around 2004 around the country, those uh, same-sex marriages did not need to be recognized by those statutes. And it really is an equal protection issue uh, where you've got a class of people, lesbians and gays, who are getting married who are treated differently and their marriages are viewed differently than uh, heterosexual couples. And that's one of the issues that is going to be decided by the Supreme Court in arguments next month. So in the Windsor case, on June 26, 2013, it was the provisions of the DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, that said federal benefits for same-sex couples will be denied. In other words, the federal government has many benefits that are available for married heterosexual couples, but the Defense of Marriage Act, which was voted into Congress and signed by Bill Clinton in 1994, said that if there are same-sex couples who marry, the federal government does not need to recognize the marriage and the federal government does not need to make those benefits available. The benefits that were available to Edie Windsor upon Thea's death were that when Thea died, Edie inherited her uh, estate uh, as her surviving spouse. However, since the marriage was not recognized by the federal government, Edie had to pay a $565,000 inheritance tax. And if Edie's uh, spouse had been a man, there would be no inheritance tax. So you have a great uh, half a million dollar question, tax question, and Edie said, I'm not going to pay that. Well, she did pay it, and she hired the ACLU, and she sued the federal government. And so the Supreme Court heard that case on June 26, 2013, issued its opinion invalidating that section of the Defense of Marriage Act, making the federal benefits of marriage available to all married same-sex couples. At the time of that decision, there were less than a dozen marriage equality states. Flash forward two years, less than two years later, a majority of the population of the United States, I believe about 75% of the population, lives in marriage equality states. 38 states plus Washington, D.C. recognize marriage equality, and a minority of 12 states uh, still have marriage prohibition statutes. And there were over 60 lawsuits that were argued at the various federal and state trial levels, federal courts of appeals, and in the last two years, resulting in uh, appeals to the U.S. Supreme Court out of the Sixth Circuit, including Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. In Michigan's case, DeBoer versus Snyder is the, is the uh, key case that's going to the Supreme Court next month, challenging Michigan's marriage, uh, same-sex marriage prohibition and its adoption statute that prohibits same-sex couples from co-adopting children. And so that's where we were, going back to 1969, 2001, 2004, 2013, and now here we are in uh, March of 2015, and on April 28th, uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., uh, the four cases consolidated, including the DeBoer case out of Michigan, and the other six cases will be argued, oral arguments will be before the Supreme Court with a final decision expected by the end of their term toward the end of June 2015. And so it's expected, although one can never predict what the Court of Appeals will do, the, court, the Supreme Court narrowed the issue down to two specific questions. Does the 14th Amendment, Amendment of the Constitution for Equal Protection require states to recognize same-sex marriages of other states? And the second question, uh, does the 14th Amendment Equal Protection require 
county clerks to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. It's two very narrowly drawn questions, and those are the questions that the Supreme Court is going to decide. Now, will they? Uh, will we have their decision by the end of this term? It's expected. Traditionally, the U.S. Supreme Court, when it hears its arguments uh, in its spring term, all of the decisions are rendered by the end of June. And so they have oral arguments, and then they have decision days. And the decisions uh, are based upon the oral arguments, and then the opinions are drafted, they're circulated among the justices, and then the justices decide if they're going to write their own opinion or if they're going to join with the majority or the minority. And so it's expected. Now, the Supreme Court has, in its history, held decisions over into the next term, into the fall term, but it is expected. That's very unusual that that would happen. It's expected the decision on the Sixth Circuit cases will be decided by the end of June. For example, the um, Windsor decision was argued on, I believe, uh, March 26th, and the Supreme Court issued its decision on the last day of its term on June 26, 2013. And so it's expected that this will be decided by the end of June. Interesting. I, I want to throw in here that I attended a hearing at, this, uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court, and this was regarding paralegal fees not very long ago, and they did issue that opinion, which um, found in favor of, of being able to charge for paralegal fees right on the last day of the term. So that was interesting. Also interesting to be there as an observer and knowing about the case. So Anyway, we're going to stop now to take a short break for a word from our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Rick Verone, an attorney with Warner Norcross and Judd in Grand Rapids, Michigan. NALA means professional. NALA offers classroom and web-based continuing education and professional development for all paralegals. And NALA's certified paralegal credential has been a gold standard of professionalism for over 30 years. More than 15,000 paralegals have this certification, and nearly 2,000 have achieved the demanding advanced certified paralegal. NALA works actively with all those in the legal field to promote the value of paralegals and to advance paralegal professionalism. See more about why NALA means professional at www.nala.org. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry, connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. Welcome back to the Paralegal Voice. I'm Vicki Boyson, and my guest today is attorney Rick Rohn, and we're discussing LGBT issues. Now, Rick, so far we've focused on the history of LGBT issues, and what I'd like for you to do now is to share your personal experience with our listeners. Well, my personal experience started when I came to Grand Rapids in 1987, and I moved here after law school in Los Angeles. And I moved in the middle of winter, and it seemed like a 
the cold environment I was moving into, both physically and literally emotionally. Um, I didn't know anyone in town. I wanted to practice family law. It was just, it's a small community. It's a very welcoming legal community. It's a very nice community to practice in. But I didn't know anyone, and no one knew me. And so, and I had this big secret because I really wasn't out. I was gay, and I was afraid, particularly moving to a conservative community, that if I was gay, nobody would hire me, or if I was hired and working in an office, and then they found out I was gay, that I would be fired. So that was a fear that I lived with for a couple of weeks when I got my first job. And my the first lawyer that I worked for, Jim Zarenner, just assumed or figured out that I was gay and and pulled me into his office one day and said, hey, you know, this is cool, I'm fine with this, I don't know that I know any gays, but he said, you know, you don't need to be the leader of the parade, you don't have to be an activist to make a difference, so help the people that you want to help, represent the clients you want to represent, kind of be quiet about it, and, you know, don't lead the parade, don't be an activist, and frankly, don't wreck my business. So I was respectful of his desires, and I had had the opportunity over my entire practice to work with gays and lesbians in their relationship breakups to help them, uh, either as a mediator or as an advocate for one or the other, helping them get through the process. So my personal experience was I was working in a friendly work environment, and I didn't feel any hostility, and I didn't, I wasn't fearful that I would be fired because I was gay. But I've represented many people over the years who are gay, and that was their biggest fear, um, that if they were found out by their employer, whether a school teacher or whether uh, they work in a church or whether they work in a restaurant or, or whatever they do for work, and you know, other lawyers, paralegals, what is going to happen if their boss finds out if they're gay, you know, whether they work in a big organization or a small company? And that is something that's very, it draws a lot of energy away from you. If you're fearful that you might lose your job, you know, our jobs identify who we are. They're our livelihood. They're how we pay our bills. They provide us financial security during our work years. And they provide us with retirement security in our retirement year, years. And so and we spend, you know, most of our waking hours working uh, at our jobs. And it's important that you are comfortable and you're not fearful that, you know, come whatever day comes around the corner that, that you're going to lose your job. And so this is a fear that, that people uh, legitimately have, and um, it, it's something that we focus on. Now, is there a risk for more for paralegals than for partners of a firm? I know you're a partner. Vicki, I think that there is, because as a partner, I've got a partnership agreement. It's kind of like an employee contract. You know, there's, there's certain standards and conditions by which a partner can be removed in most you know, partnerships. A paralegal, by definition, cannot be a partner in a law firm. They're not a lawyer, so they're not part of the partnership agreement. And so presumably, people in paralegal positions are employees, employees at will. Now, I'm not a labor expert, so I don't want to lead anyone to believe that, that I'm an expert in labor law. But they would be an employee at will. Sometimes they might be employed by an employment contract. But for the most part, they're not protected under, they wouldn't be protected by a partnership agreement. And so I suppose an unsympathetic law firm could fire a paralegal on the basis that they were gay and probably get away with it. And particularly in the states where there are not legal protections for LGBT folks, uh, as some states do have those legal protections. Now, Rick, as we went into this, I assumed every state would have protection for LGBT, uh, the, the LGBT community. And it was shocking to me to find out that actually the number of states that do, that's a minority of our states. 
I think it's... It is, uh, shocking. it is shocking for people to hear that LGBT folks, who are clearly a um, minority in the population, do not have legal protections in every state. We do not have a federal uh, protection. There is a proposed federal legislation called ENDA, Employment Discrimination Act, that would protect LGBT folks that has never passed Congress. And then throughout the country, virtually all states have an equivalent of a state civil rights act and it provides for protected classes of individuals and and what can and can't be done. Now, Michigan's version of the Civil Rights Act at the state level is called the Elliott Larson Act that goes back to 1977 when it was enacted in Michigan on January 13, 1977. It was a bill signed into law by Governor William Milliken at that time, and it's named after the two sponsoring legislators, uh, Elliott and Larson. Uh, in 2014, Michigan's legislature and a group, a huge coalition of businesses, were trying to expand Michigan's Elliott Larson Act to include protections for LGBT folks. And that effort, even though it had a huge groundswell of support, primarily from the business community, and we're talking big corporations saying it's good for business to make Michigan a friendly and welcome place for LGBT folks, and we can do that by providing protections so that they have protections at their job and in their housing and other accommodations. And that bill did not get out of committee, and it died at the end of the, legis the legislative session. It's expected that a similar bill may be proposed again in the current legislature, but right now Michigan is in the majority of 27 states who do not have statewide uh, protections. Now, the Elliott Larson Protection Act says it prohibits discriminations on the basis of religion, race, color, national origin, age, sex, height, weight, familial status or marital status, and the discrimination goes, goes to protection in employment, housing, education, and access to public accommodations. So it does not provide protection for LGBT folks. So if someone is overweight, they're protected, but if someone is gay, they're not. So if someone is short or tall, they can be protected. If they're gay, they're not protected. And that's what's so surprising because it seems to most people that in this modern day and this modern world that there would be protections in your job. So a public or a private employer can fire someone solely on the basis that they're gay or lesbian. And it doesn't matter if you are employed by a corporation or a governmental entity? It's the same right. thing? Now, there are 23 states, and I've got a list of them. I don't want to... I think that. I'll put the list up on my website. How's that? That's a good idea, because okay. there are a list of states from California to Wisconsin, 23 states, who do have uh, protections for LGBT folks. And what the, what the Michigan Coalition of, Coalition of Businesses uh, and the ACLU, which was uh, a big supporter and sponsor of this legislation last year, discovered was that in the states that do have protections for gays and lesbians, it's a better business climate. It's more welcoming, and it's more likely that gays and lesbians will be employed there or will start businesses there and will employ people there, which is good for economic growth. And in the states that do not have those protections, there's a chance that there will be an exodus of lesbians and gays to leave the state where there's not protection and go to states where there's, there's more protection. Okay, so what tips do you have for uh, someone who is in a state that does not have the protection, that is concerned about, they may be concerned about losing their job if they're out. So what should they be doing in the meantime uh, to... Well, let me give an example. Let's okay. You've got a, a gay school teacher working for a public school. And that person is, is, you know, would be horrified that that 
the uh, school administration, the principal, other teachers find out, that, or parents find out that they're gay. So the person's not out, they're somewhat closeted, and they're teaching, and they're doing just fine. It's important that you get great reviews uh, and that your employment file shows good performance reviews or excellent performance reviews. It would be very suspicious if a an, an employee teacher has years of great, excellent reviews, letters of commendation from administrators, letters of support from, from parents, and all of a sudden, when that teacher is found out to be gay, is suddenly fired, it looks a little suspicious. Why would the, what is the basis for the firing? Now, technically, the school can fire the teacher for being gay, although the teacher may have a cause of action on an employment discrimination basis, and again, talk to an employment lawyer, I'm not an employment lawyer, on the basis that by all other measures, if this has been an excellent teacher, excellent reviews, teacher of the year, parents love the teacher and support the teacher, and then the teacher is suddenly fired because it's found out that the teacher is gay. Right now, there is no prohibition in Michigan for that kind of conduct. And it leaves the teacher feeling vulnerable. And sure. It leaves the teacher uh, feeling, you know, less than a whole human being with all, you know, the rights and, and responsibilities that everyone else has. And it can be demoralizing and it can be depressing. My advice would be to make sure that you've got, you know, good reviews and good information and good records, and good progress reports in your employment file. Um, you should have access to your employment file who you're, for, for whoever you're working for. And, you know, if you win a Teacher of the Year award or if you win some national accolade or some local accolade, if you're the president of the NALS organization or if you're the president of the, or active in the paralegal association, you know, make sure that information is in your employment file because those are things that are achievement, uh, achievement and experience-based. And it may make it harder for an employer to... Uh, support a firing solely based on your on your LGBT status. Right. Great advice. Well, if anyone wanted to get it, uh, first of all, I know that you have a new publication or a new article out. I'd like for you to tell our listeners about that. Yes. Going back to the marriage equality issue, I have a recent uh, publication in the Journal of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, uh, and it was an issue that, was, that came out on March 1st, 2015. And it was devoted to cutting-edge issues in family law, and the title of the article is Marriage Equality Update. And I co-authored this with my colleague and friend Richard Wilson, a divorce lawyer out of Chicago. And this article introduces the marriage equality movement, the same-sex marriage movement, going back uh, to uh, the first uh, same-sex marriage in Netherlands, as I talked about earlier, then in uh, Massachusetts uh, 11 years ago, all the way up to the Supreme Court's decision that had to be added as a footnote, because this was literally hot off the press, uh, that on January 16, the Supreme Court decided to take the Sixth Circuit cases to try to resolve, address and hopefully resolve the, the issue of the disparity of, of equality versus prohibition states in the United States. And so that's a recent publication, and I can make uh, copies of it available uh, if a listener would want to contact me by email. Okay, and how would they contact you? My email address is r, and then my last name, R-O-A-N-E, at W, N for Norcross, Judd, W-N-J dot com, R-R-O-A-N-E at W-N-J dot com. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. This has been very enlightening. I've enjoyed the information that you've shared, and I know that our listeners will, and I really appreciate you taking the time 
to uh, to be with me today. Thanks so much, Rick. It's been a pleasure, Vicky. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Let's take another short break now, but don't go away because when I come back, I'll have news and career tips for you. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Welcome back to the Paralegal Voice. This is the time of the show when I share with you some news and also some career tips for you. Uh, the news that I have for you today uh, is uh, all wrapped up in the, the career tip. And I have observed legal professionals through the years that I've been involved with uh, this career. And there are many who are what I, I guess... Uh, disorganized is a good word for it. And I think that we are all so busy that we have a difficult time uh, being organized and keeping our workspace in order. And a lot of that is because, um, you know, we have so much to do. We get our work in layers. We don't know where to start. We think that we don't have time to take care of that. And so, what do they say? Ah, da da, the paralegal mentor to the rescue. I've uh, prepared a manual that's titled Simple Strategies for Organizing Your Workspace. And I have lots of ideas in there that will help you uh, make this easier for you. And I do tell you how you have time and uh, what steps you should take and when you should take those. So I hope you will check that out. Uh, You can find that at paralegalmentor.com forward slash simple dash strategies dash for dash organizing dash your dash workspace. That's it. Dashes all the way. Anyway, that will help you kick clutter, kick up the decision-making process, and kick some bad habits. So check that out. And that's all that I have for you today. Uh, it's time for us to to sign off. If you have any questions about today's show, please email them to Vicki, V-I-C-K-I, at paralegalmentor.com. And also, don't forget to check out my blog, Paralegal Mentor blog, and the resources that I do have available for you at my website, paralegalmentor.com. Everything is designed to help you move your career in the right direction, and that's forward. This is Vicki Voison, thanking you for listening to the Paralegal Voice and reminding you to make your Paralegal Voice heard. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to The Paralegal Voice, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join Vicki Voisin for her next podcast on issues and trends affecting paralegals and legal assistants. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.